0: It is a book that needs no introduction. C.S. Lewis's remarkable classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, turned 70 on October 16, 2020. On this special combined broadcast of Good Heavens and Apologetics Profile, we celebrate the cosmological, apologetic, and literary legacy of this wonderfully rich and imaginative book with C.S. Lewis scholar Dr. Michael Ward. The following information comes from his homepage at Houston Baptist University. Dr. Ward holds a PhD in divinity from the University of St. Andrews, a masters of theology from the University of Cambridge, a masters in English language and literature from the University of Oxford, a bachelors in theology from the University of Cambridge and a bachelors in English language and literature from the University of Oxford. He teaches C.S. Lewis and imaginative apologetics as well as literature and apologetics at Houston Baptist University, remotely from Oxford, England. His principal area of research is in theological imagination, particularly the intersection between narrative art and the expression of Christian experience and Christian doctrine. Within this framework, he has a special interest in theodicy. His publications include C.S. Lewis at Poet's Corner, edited with Peter S. Williams, The Cambridge Companion to C.S. Lewis, edited with Robert McSwain, Planet Narnia, The Seven Heavens in the Imagination of C.S. Lewis, and Heresies and How to Avoid Them, Why It Matters, Why Christians Believe, edited with Ben Quash. Dr. Ward lives in Oxford in his native England, but visits the United States frequently, where he has lectured in over 30 of the 50 states, including at the universities of Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, Chicago, And at the Library of Congress, his articles have appeared on the cover of Christianity Today, Touchstone Magazine, and the Christian Research Journal. He is an editorial board member of Seven, an Anglo-American literary review, the Journal of Inklings Studies, and Senshut, the C.S. Lewis Journal. He presented the BBC television documentary, The Narnia Code, made by the BAFTA-winning director, Norman Stone. He serves on the advisory board at the Weight Center at Wheaton College. Well, good afternoon to you, Dr. Ward. Wonderful to be with you here uh, again from Texas. Uh, we're talking to you in, uh, in the UK. So thanks for being on today and talking about Narnia, I love to talk about this, and I love to have you to talk about it with.
1: <laughs> Pleasure. Thank you for having me, Dan. It's good to be with you uh, across the miles. I'm speaking from Oxford, England,
0: and you are in Texas. Is that right? I'm in Arlington, Texas, a mile away from Cowboys Stadium. <laughs> sure you're good. The uh, American football club, not the soccer no. football <laughs> no, But we are, uh, we are in uh, COVID times we are, uh, we are all holed up in our spare ooms uh, And I thought it would be a great opportunity uh, It kind of feels, it's not quite like the air raids That forced the Pevensey children out to the professor's house But um, here we are in our spare ooms uh, Wondering when this is all going to be over And I thought, what an opportunity to be able to uh, Discuss the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe On its 70th anniversary month It turned 70 in October uh, uh, this month. Uh, uh, It it was published in October uh, 1950, correct?
1: That's right, yes.
0: And uh, it has an enduring classic. I mean, this is probably, I mean, a lot. Just to give you an example, Michael, I was with Sarah Salviander just a couple of nights ago. She spoke at a church in Houston. There's about 150 people there, and she spoke on her chapter in our book, The Story of the Cosmos. And she was speaking on, of course, black holes and how she sees the the interconnection to to the nature and the character of God and what he has created through black holes. And uh, she took a line from Narnia, and she said, uh, black holes aren't safe, but they're good. (laughs) And she paused and she 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 paused and there was a general murmur from the 150 people there even some teenagers that were there and the general rumble was aslan everybody said aslan just from sarah saying it's not they're not safe but they're good uh-huh. and everybody remembered narnia and i thought that was the most fantastic testament to the kind of work and achievement that lewis has here with Narnia, what do you say to that? Yeah,
1: I do. That's testimony to, uh, well, the popularity of the books, but also the way that they have, you know, not just been read and, and, and sold and bought and taught, but also the way they have sort of entered into people's minds at a deep level. Um, you know, they, they, they've become the, the furniture, part of the furniture of, of so many people's minds and hearts, so that a phrase like that can immediately be, be, be picked up on. And you can't say that of even every popular book. Mm. You know, Mm -hmm. this is popularity Mm. of a certain kind, a deep and rich kind.
0: Yes. There are so many levels to this book. I was listening to your broadcast from 11 years ago on Unbelievable with a a skeptic lady who had written a book about Narnia. And uh, you had extolled her for the the virtues of her recognizing the, the foundational literary quality of Narnia which, as you point out in that discussion, you know, critics of Lewis will, will just tear it down. Some people, people, atheists and skeptics, will just tear it down and find no value in it whatsoever. And then sometimes Christians will just sort of overlook the literary quality and flavor for, for the allegories and the, the Christian themes. But you bring up the point that at, its, at, a, at a deep foundational level, there's an extraordinary literary quality to this book, could you expand upon that a little bit?
1: Yes, Laura Miller, that lady was. She wrote a very good book called *The, the Magician's Book: A Skeptic's Adventures in Narnia*, and yeah, I, I liked her book a lot because she recognised many of the of the literary qualities of the book, um, picking up on on you know symbolism and myth and allegory and and and, and, and showing herself able to distinguish between the, the literary qualities which she admired and the and the Christian subtext, which she wasn't so keen on, um, but of course, if you uh, appreciate the Christian subtext, which you can do indeed without necessarily being a Christian, um, you get, you know, you get two things at once. You get double for your money, and that's why I think. Well, that's one of the reasons why the books have have indeed become so successful and long lasting. That there's more going on here than in your regular children's book. They do work as simple fairy stories, the Narnia Chronicles. And you can read them without any understanding of or appreciation for the Christian parallels going on. But um if you are attuned to theology and the and the scriptural resonances, then well you uh you have more to enjoy. But as I've pointed out, um in my book Planet Narnia, there's there's even a third level going on in these books, yes, which has to do with with the planets, the seven heavens of the medieval cosmos, which Lewis was so expert in as a medieval scholar. And um, perhaps we can talk about that a bit today.
0: Absolutely. Because one of the things, uh, just some background for our listeners, Uh, you know this, some of my listeners may or may not, but uh, you were my graduate thesis advisor, and I did my thesis on your book, Planet Narnia. And it basically... As, as so many other people have said about this book, um, it, it, it really altered the course of my professional life. I went from middle school teacher to a master's degree student, and then on to helping publish The Story of the Cosmos. And uh, I would even say that my job that I have at Watchman Fellowship right now is largely, in part, one of the gifts that God has bestowed upon me since uh, being able to write uh, my thesis for you at HBU. So... Not only just Narnia. I didn't discover Narnia until my thirties, um, but uh, discovering Planet Narnia, your book, was when I was teaching middle school in 2013, and uh, I was enthralled by it. Uh, this idea of the seven heavens um, that that Lewis would take this medieval cosmology and, as you describe, make an atmosphere out of that. Uh, it, it's sort of the backdrop, the the stage setting. Uh, the aesthetic aspect, the aesthetic literary quality, the whole resonance of Narnia has this planetary atmosphere, and each of the seven books, as you argue, uh, in Narnia represents a planet, and Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe is Jovian, Jupiter, by Jove. It is the planet Jupiter. Uh, so what do, for people hearing for this for the first time, Michael, what does it mean to have a planet for an atmosphere in a literary story? What are we talking about?
1: Yeah, good question. Uh, and first, we should you know very quickly specify the seven heavens that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the best way to think about them is in connection with the seven days of the week, because, of course, it is from these seven planets that we take the names of the days of the week. Saturday is named after Saturn, Sunday after the sun, Monday after the moon. So the sun and the moon are considered planets in the medieval cosmos. Mm-hmm. And then the other four days of the week, it's a bit hidden from us in English Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, um, because for some reason there we use the Norse names of the planetary gods and goddesses rather than the Roman ones. But if you think in Spanish or French, hmm. it's a bit more obvious. So, you know, Mardi, Martes in French and Spanish for Tuesday, the day of Mars, Mercredi, Miercoles for Wednesday, obviously Mercury's day, Jueves uh, or Jedi. Or For Thursday, Thursday, or also Jove's Day, Jupiter's Day. Mm. And finally, Friday. um, Freya is the Norse equivalent of the Roman Venus. Mm -hmm. Vendredi in French and Viennes in Spanish. Mm. Those are the seven heavens that we're talking about. The the medievals didn't know about um, uh, Pluto or or Uranus or Neptune. These were the seven heavens that could be seen with the naked eye.
0: Mm. So Lewis takes these the concept of a of a planet in the medieval cosmos uh there's some unpacking there in terms of how do we how do we how does lion the witch in the wardrobe fit in with with jupiter uh what what is lewis doing if and i think the background is important for a lot of people for the on the literary level michael that um lewis's life's work was the uh was was a literary scholar, a literary critic. His magnum opus was his uh, book, "The Sixteenth um, Century uh, History of English Literature." Correct. That's that's his. Would he consider that to be his his crowning professional work?
1: Well, it's certainly his biggest book, uh, and it took him mm-hmm. fifteen years to write. So yeah, that you, that's fairly described as his magnum opus. And yeah, he was a medieval scholar, literary critic, and literary historian who spent his whole professional career teaching first at Oxford and then at Cambridge and yeah he studied medieval literature more closely than almost anybody and he was very well aware of the use that medieval writers had made of, of these seven heavens he, he calls them spiritual symbols of permanent value mm. um, so each planet each heaven acquired a certain set of attributes and characteristics mm. um, obviously you know with the sun we have illumination um, wisdom, gold, therefore riches of of all kinds. With the moon, which is so changeable, mm. uh, we have inconstancy, instability, changeableness, and therefore, you know, uh, the changeable nature of one's mind. Hence lunacy, becoming mad because of the influence of the moon. Yes, and likewise with the other five. Um, <clears throat> but if we focus on Jupiter for today, given this anniversary month of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, Jupiter was symbolic of all things kingly and regal. Mm. Uh, Jupiter was the kingly spirit, but we must think of a particular kind of king, Lewis says. Uh, we must think of a king at ease, mm. taking his pleasure, serene, tranquil, magnanimous, festive, cheerful, that kind of kingship. Mm. Um, and that kind of quality of the jovial atmosphere that Jupiter symbolises um, is is, that, is the the matrix out of which he writes the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So the whole book, are, the whole of that story, is designed to communicate those qualities of kingship, of um, magnanimity, mm. and indeed more specific jovial influences such as the passing of winter and the forgiving of guilt and we know that lewis associated jupiter with those things because he wrote a long poem called the planets and when he gets to jupiter in in his own poem he says that jupiter one of the things that jupiter brings about is winter past and guilt forgiven so when we turn to the lion the witch and the wardrobe and we find that that is a story in which the white witch has cast a, a hundred year wintry spell over narnia and yet, that winter uh, is dissipated at the coming of the kingly Aslan. Mm. Uh, we see how the, the the jovial symbolism is being hardwired into the story. Yeah, it, it never asks to be recognised consciously. It it sub subver- it, it, it gets beneath our conscious attention. Mm. It, it's meant to be beneath our radar, so that we just feel it, yeah. we intuit it, yeah. uh, we sense it, and. and That was one of the things I think that Lewis was trying to achieve. He was trying to perpetuate these spiritual symbols Hmm. in the modern imagination. He said that one of the things about Jupiter was that Jupiter had almost evaporated from the modern imagination. Uh, Saturn, he said, was still very much one of our archetypes. And indeed, he said, we live in a Saturnine age, a sad and bitter and death-dealing age. Those are all the qualities of Saturn. Saturn, we know more than enough, he said, but who does not need to be reminded of Jove? So he's reminding us of these jovial qualities, um, albeit indirectly, subliminally, in the way that the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe is structured.
0: One of the things that I learned, it's the smallest, probably the smallest phrase, and it seems like the most, uh, it's a weird phrase to remember, but I remember writing my thesis for you. This is back in, what was it, 2016, uh, reading uh, Lewis's work on the 16th century uh, literature. And I came across a phrase where he's talking about the innocence in the style of both poetry and prose of that time, uh, where he says, quote, good is as visible as green. So how do you make goodness visible? You don't, you know, and and that seemed to me like a a real insightful uh, clue to what Lewis is doing in Narnia, making something visible without putting it right before your eyes, making something. How do you make magnanimity visible? How do you make kingliness? A mm. king, how do you make these visible? Um, and, you know, right off the bat, the children are adorning fur. They're in the wardrobe. There's these wonderful fur coats that all make them feel like kings and queens as they first come into Narnia in the wintry chill they've got the coats on um but it, I think that's what he 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 was a big fan of Edmund Spencer I say fan he he was he he adored Edmund Spencer and the fairy queen and loved what Spencer was doing in combining things that 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 maybe other people would find to be shallow or incomprehensible I think Tolkien had an issue with the way C.S. Lewis was putting uh all these different mythological ideas into Narnia. But uh, Lewis was really attempting to describe uh, an atmosphere, right? Is that, do you think that's accurate? Do you think he was, he was trying to, he was modeling his, his, his literary heroes in some sense, would you say?
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, he, he did indeed love Edmund Spencer um, and wrote about him a great deal. Um, and he says of Spencer's, famous poem the fairy queen that it is it is a a a hymn to the cosmos as spencer believed it to be uh and indeed he's sort of echoing or emulating spencer in in the way that he structures *Narnia* out of the same cosmological symbols um but yeah he's 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 making these qualities perhaps it would be better not to use the word visible but sensible okay We, we sense them we we don't look at them. We can't identify them, as it were, with our contemplative consciousness, to use a technical term uh, in Lewis's thought. We don't contemplate them from the outside, looking at them, but we rather enjoy them from the inside. We look along them. And that's what Lewis is doing by just throwing us into this jovial story world in which we we live and move and have our being in these in these jovial qualities of of kingship, yeah, you're quite right. When the children put on the fur coats, we're told that they looked more like kings and queens mm. uh, when they put them on. They looked like royal coats, and that's a that's an indication of where the story is going to end up. When they when they are crowned and and hailed and enthroned and, and sceptered, right at the end of the story, and and Aslan declares, "Once a king in Narnia, always a king in Narnia. Once a queen in Narnia, always a queen in Narnia." Yes. so the, the whole story is designed to to bestow kingship and queenship on the children um, very obviously and then as it were indirectly upon the reader we feel these kingly these regal these magnanimous qualities as mm. we as we move about in this story world mm. but we don't look at it this is the important thing um you know lewis had had written about the jovial quality explicitly in in so much of his scholarly output. And also in his poem, The Planets, and to a certain extent, even in his Ransom Trilogy, the interplanetary novels he wrote during the Second World War, he uses the planets there very explicitly and describes them in in depth, in detail. But in Narnia, he, he, as it were, goes inside, he goes native with these seven symbols, so that they, they draw no attention to themselves, rather they, they, they allow us access to that which they signify.
0: Hmm. Hmm. And you bring up, you're talking about uh, entering into rather than uh, analyzing from the outside. And of course, that has uh, C- the Lewis's essay, Meditation in a Toolshed, where he looks at a beam of sunlight coming through the top of the door. Uh, He's in relative darkness, and there's one solitary beam of light that arrests his attention, and he's analyzing it from the outside and describing it in one way, and then he steps into the beam, and then suddenly the whole vision uh, of this ray of light is is completely different. He sees the trees outside, and then uh, the sun 93 million miles away. It's a completely different way of looking at the light by being inside the light and uh i've always kind of imaginatively wondered if not the wardrobe wasn't something of the tool shed <laughs> where the children literally step inside the beam and uh and so do we as as the readers we step inside uh this jovial world uh that is really ultimately a spiritual symbol of of christ because he says in one letter i don't know what what letter it was you probably do where he says the narnia series is all about christ and uh so uh, you've pointed this out before And one of the ways you discovered this You are You are uh, you are credited with discovering the seven heavens Theme in Narnia There have been lots of sevens that have been attempted But this one came about Through your discovery in Lewis's Poetry of, of Winter past guilt forgiven about Jupiter And so you've been brought Along into the beam of all of this uh, uh, Lewis's Imagination um, And why do you think he kept this delight like didn't write a book about didn't write a book about how he did this or why he did this or what he was doing it doesn't seem like he told anybody that this is what he was up to is that part of why it's so delightful do you think
1: yes that's part of the part of the whole purpose behind lewis's strategy that it's meant to you know it's deliberately beneath our contemplative consciousness he he deliberately wanted to keep it secret if he told people that this was what he was up to he would have frustrated his whole purpose because it it is that enjoyment consciousness the looking along the beam that in his view was was the was the better richer deeper kind of knowledge it's it's all well and good there's certainly a time and a place for contemplative consciousness for stepping outside things and looking at them in a cold dispassionate disinterested kind of way um but you can't do that for for everything Mm. because um it it, it's only because you look along a beam that you're able to look at another beam as it were you know to go back to that meditation in the tool shed Mm -hmm. he sees this beam of light slanting down through the Crack at the top of the door, and you can see the little particles of dust floating in that sunbeam, and he sees how it lights up a patch of the floor, and he's looking at it from the side. This is his image, his symbol of the contemplative, analytical, external point of view. But of course, he he can only see that beam of light because other beams of light are entering his eye. Uh, but those beams of light are invisible to him. They're invisible because he's looking along them. This is this is the point of the whole parable that when you step inside a beam, it vanishes from your sight because it's no longer the object of your vision; mm. it's now the medium of your vision. And so, this is hugely important for C.S. Lewis. Um, you know, intellectually, epistemologically. Um, in, by epistemology, we mean the, the science of consciousness, how we how we know things. But it, it's also important for him the, theologically and spiritually because how do we know God? Um, we can't make of God an exter- a purely external object of consciousness. Why not? Well, because we are creatures of God. God has brought us into being. God is sustaining us in being. Mm. And in mm. God, we live and move and have our being. I'm quoting there St. Paul um, in the book of Acts. Um, it is in Christ that all things hold together, we're told in the letter to the Colossians. Um, We can't get out. We're trapped, you might even say. (laughs) Uh, If we we tried to get out of God's creative and sustaining power, our presence, we would be stepping into non-existence. We'd be stepping into the void. Mm. So we are already, as it were, within the palm of God's hand even as we look up at God's face as revealed to us in Jesus Christ. So it's very interesting how in the Bible, you know, St. Paul will say it is by the Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. Uh, It's only in Christ that we can identify Jesus as the Christ. Otherwise, he's just, you know, some random Jewish rabbi.
2: Hmm.
1: Uh, You know, Jesus says to Peter, uh, when Peter makes his great confession that Caesarea Philippi, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says to Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Simon Bar-Jonah, but my father who is in heaven.
0: Hmm. So
1: it is, it is by God that we see God. It is in God that we see God. It is, and indeed, it is um, by light that we see light. Light is not so much something we see as it is something we see by Mm. Um, In your light, we see light. I quote the psalmist so all, all all this is to to get at the the mysterious fact that our knowledge of god is is fundamentally a a knowledge of enjoyment consciousness of mm. being inside before it can ever be anything contemplative or outside mm. And so this is what Lewis is trying to get at in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. He throws us into this jovial world full of all these Jupiter symbols. And then within that world, how marvelous we see a lion. And Aslan, in his own person, sums up, crystallizes, we might even say incarnates, these jovial Aspects which are otherwise spread abroad across the rest of the tale. Mm. So there, Lewis has has done something of of profound theologically imaginative importance, because he's giving us a a symbol within a story of a of a deep theological truth. That Jesus Mm. entered into this world, a world which by his own word he had created, Mm. and by whose word it was indeed being sustained. So the word, which is cos- cosmic, becomes human in Christ. The word becomes flesh and dwells among us, full of grace and truth. So in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we might say Jupiter becomes flesh and dwells among the Narnians in the mm. form of the jovial lion Aslan.
0: Wow. It's uh, correspondent to something C.S. Lewis said in Miracles, um, about light nature is being lit up by a light from beyond nature someone is speaking who knows more about her than can be known from inside of her and I think that mm-hmm. fits exactly what you have just said um, that there is a light Christ is the light of the world I think it's John eight twelve. both you know uh, illuminating presence and in a in a, in a, in a and, and, and wisdom, and you know, the, the creative agent who, who espouses wisdom and beauty and truth by speaking, you know, in Genesis, let there be light. And, and so here we are inside the beam of the created cosmos. And as you say, quoting St. Paul, uh, in him we live and move and have our being. And in Matthew, um, one of my favorite scriptures that Jesus says to us, you are the light of the world, but our nature is being lit up from a light beyond nature as well. Uh, and that the light in us is the light that Christ has given us, so it, it's it 's interesting, Michael, because I think this is timely for our time um as as we all know, Narnia begins with a brief mention of the air raids, and these air raids uh sent the Pevensey children to the countryside at the old professor 's house there 's some really True history behind that statement, can you fill us in on exactly how this was actually somewhat autobiographical of Lewis himself?
1: Yeah, that's right. During the second world war when the when the blitzkrieg when the when the Luftwaffe was dropping bombs all over London and indeed other major cities, uh, quite a lot of the the inhabitants of those cities, particularly the children were sent away to the countryside and some indeed were sent abroad quite a lot for instance went to canada um and some children were evacuated to oxford Hmm. and came to live at c.s lewis's house just outside oxford um called the kilns and and he had a number of um children living at his house uh, different numbers at different times during the during the six years of the war and um yeah, it, it's that precise setup that we meet on the first page of The Line the Witch and the Wardrobe. This is a story about four children called Peter, Susan, Lucy, P- Peter, Susan, Edmund and Lucy, who were sent away from London because of the air raids to stay in the house of a professor in the country. Um, and so, yeah, you've got immediately um, a context of war in the background. And in a way, that's that's setting up the war that we will encounter when the children get into Narnia, that the war is there between the forces of Jupiter, as symbolized by the jovial Aslan, and the forces of Saturn, as signified by the White Witch, because the witch has made it always winter, but never Christmas. Mm. Um, She is the personification, we might say, of the Saturnine influence, the, the, the symbol of old age and death and deceit and pestilence and all negative things um of saturn we know more than enough but who does not need to be reminded of jove quoting lewis again of the white witch the Narnians know more than enough but who does not need to be reminded of aslan and a memory of aslan is kept alive within Narnia. we're told about that by uh through the mouth of mr Tumnus, who, who laments the, the fact that the old days of jollification uh have faded from view, but that very word jollification—that's an indication of of the jovial spirit, which is presently going to break upon the Narnian world as, as Jupiter exerts his influence. Because hmm. uh, jollity, joviality, uh, jubilee, joy and jubilee—to quote Lewis's poem—these are all manifestations of the jovial influence. Hmm. But I want to go back briefly, if I to your point about there being a similarity. Between the meditation and a tool shed, and the moment when the children first go into the wardrobe. Yes. Because I, I think that's quite a that's quite a profound point, and m- might even have been um, you know consciously present in Lewis's mind as he as he depicts that moment in the first Narnia story. Because when the children stumble through the wardrobe into Narnia, they, they don't know immediately where they are. They they're both literally and metaphorically in the dark. Mm. And then we have this little change while well, while they're still floundering about in the, in the depths of the wardrobe ooh said susan suddenly and everyone asked her what was the matter i'm sitting against a tree said susan and look it's getting light over there by jove you're right said peter and look there and there it's trees all around and this wet stuff is snow why i do believe we've got into lucy's wood after all and you see there that, brief exchange between the children uh, a great amount of significance packed in yes because yeah it's getting light over there. And, the, and the light is coming from this lantern uh, which dispels the darkness of the gloomy winter's night and it is you know is a token therefore of the coming illumination that aslan will bring when he shakes his mane we shall have spring again when he bears his teeth winter meets its death hmm. that's uh, you know it's it's what literary critics would call proleptic irony it's a foreshadowing of that which is to come yes and then we get something even more ironic beautifully subtle um, but let the reader understand peter says by jove you're right by jove susan is right and let <laughs> does peter know the significance of what he's saying right because within within his own language jupiter is exerting an influence um, by causing Peter to use this expostulation, which which now seems terribly old-fashioned, but, but which which was still fairly common in Lewis's day, mm. and still occasionally you hear it even now. Um, but Peter doesn't know the significance of what he's saying, neither, neither does the reader. But once we're clued into Lewis's purpose as the author, all these apparently random little details begin to acquire a new significance. And this is why I say that, you know, there's this kind of additional level of of, uh, of symbolism to the Narnia books. It's not just a short, uh, it's not just a simple fairy tale. It's not just a set of biblical allegories. There's this hardwired, sophisticated, intricate set of, of symbols and resonances working away as well. And this is why the books are works of such genius and why they have become so hugely popular, even with people who don't particularly like what they think of as the, as the Christian uh, propagandising going on within the stories. Mm. Um, there's, the, there's just a mastery of symbolism and indirection in, in, in what Lewis is doing. He was a, he was a master of, of that conjuring trick, the misdirection. Mm. Look over there, and while you're looking over there, he brings a rabbit out of the hat. He brings a whole <laughs> Narnian
0: world out of a wardrobe. Yes. Yes. And I think it's so, you know, you've heard, and I am i know you've seen and heard more than I have on this, but having read so much about Lewis, uh, so many people attest, especially when they were children reading Narnia for the first time, being so nearly convinced that this was a report from a real region of the world, that this was, this <laughs> had to be real, that this, this absolutely, you know, you're six, you're seven, you're however old you are, but... People coming to the to, to fruition like finding out Santa's not real. You know, at some point in your teenage years you had to come to grips with the fact Narnia wasn't real. But yet there's something very powerful in those childlike testimonies, Michael, because I think there they do the 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 children do latch on to something. They are resonating. There is such there's something real about what I'm reading, mom, dad. This is this is you know in a child's way of what real is, but you you grow up as an adult and you're like okay there's no Narnia with a wardrobe behind it, but but in truth there is. I think that uh, especially in this pandemic when we're all shut up in our tool sheds and our spare ooms, um, now's the time to look around and and find a door that uh, maybe we have neglected, and then that's C.S. Lewis speaking to us yet again. Uh, we may not be bombarded by uh, you know Germans, but we are bombarded by another danger, and we're all hovering in our domiciles. And uh, what what treasures lay undiscovered in our spare rooms? And how can we use this time transformatively? Uh, and I think Lewis reminds us that uh, your next adventure is is just around the corner. You just have to pay attention to something that you've been neglecting for so long. Would yeah. you say that that's something of what he was trying to say?
1: Well, yeah, I think when when you're talking about the the, the real seeming nature of the Narnian world, I mean, it, of course, it doesn't take much to convince a, an innocent and gullible child that such a world might really exist. Right. But I think there's something that adults too appreciate. There's a there's a kind of texture to to the Narnian world, to the Narnia books, that that does have a. Have a quality to it, which which seems more than just mere fancy or imagination. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, I think, is, is testimony to the depth of Lewis's imagination. That he, he's he's uh, concentrating into this story so much uh, wisdom, both philosophical and theological, and and wrapped up in a in a very powerful piece of storytelling. And that's why certain critics have, have, as it were, they've sort of sensed or intuited that something is going on at a deep level in the 90 books, even before they realized that it was keyed to these seven heavens. Hmm. So um, let me just quote you a, a few lines from my book, Planet Nine. Absolutely. Um, one, one critic, James Como, has perceived that the best explanation of the secret of C.S. Lewis's appeal is that his writings communicates in the words of Alexander Pope, something whose truth convinced at sight we find that gives us back the image of our mind. And another critic, Franz Rottensteiner, says the fantastic setting is as important as the story, for the beauty of Narnia is perhaps designed to awaken an unrecognized desire in the reader, which may be turned into a mystic experience of divine presence.
2: Hmm.
1: And a third critic, Peter Skackle, says that readers encounter in Narnia a bright shadow, a divine aura, a world aglow with a divine spirit. And a fourth reader, Natasha Giardina, says that Narnia taught her what experiencing the divine was all about, despite the fact she said that this aspect never registered while I was reading the story, and even though she was never particularly religious. So all these critics are Intuiting something, I think, of Lewis's underlying purpose in in the chronicles, this attempt he's making to symbolize the operation of the human spirit in the presence of the divine, the way the divine comes to us. Um, Austin Farrer, who was a close friend of C. S. Lewis's and another Oxford don, he says, "Our ignorance of what we are does not make us cease to be, and our unawareness of the profound levels of our imagination neither abolishes them." nor prevents them from acting upon our wills. And that's, I think, a very significant point that, you know, readers have been unaware of Lewis's strategy, his his structuring devices in the Narnia Chronicles. But that doesn't mean they're not working upon us. They are uh, having traction upon our minds, upon our spirits, upon our souls, upon our imaginations. And so, yeah, we come away from the books thinking, golly, that was a rich experience and that's why people keep going back because there's so much to be, to be enjoyed. There's so many flavors to be tasted.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite scenes is the, uh, when the children are brought to uh, Mr. And Mrs. Beaver's hut and they have a fish fry and the, the extent to which that Lewis goes in describing the, uh, the culinary cuisines and the, the simple hominess of, of the beaver's, uh, Domicile, the domestic bliss there—that's that's going on. And even though in the midst of great danger, uh, they know kind of what's happening. Um, they're frying fish. Uh, they're having a chat. They're talking about Aslan. And then in that conversation around the table is is that oft quoted, "Safe Aslan isn't isn't safe, but he's good, or he's not. He's good, but he's not safe. He's a lion, don't you know? And uh, you know that's so true. And I think that 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 that's one of the things that resonates with me in in, in my own faith is 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 that god is exactly that's a, a great way to describe jesus in in that sense a great symbolism uh like the planet itself it's good mm. but it's you know as human beings if you get too close to it we now know scientifically it's not very safe yeah <laughs> you'd have to do a great deal of preparation
1: <laughs> but jupiter is very good for us it is jupiter act as a kind of a shield as a gravitational force sucking away from the Earth any number of asteroids and meteors that might otherwise have destroyed us. Right. So Jupiter does act like a a, a king defending his his realm. Yes. As it were. And another nice thing about Jupiter as, as a planet, as you know, the literal astronomical body, is that there is on the surface of Jupiter, of course, the great red eye. Yes. The great red spot of Jupiter. And it's interesting to me that C.S. Lewis understood that great red spot symbolically poetically as a as a spot of blood mm. and jupiter he says the planet of kingship has a wound on his sur- surface mm. and the wound is is that of blood the wound wound of, the, of this kingly planet is like the wound of of christ's side bleeding on the cross mm. and when you think that that great red spot of Jupiter is wider in its diameter than the diameter of earth. Yes. And that you could, therefore, as it were, fit the whole of our planet earth inside that bloody spot. Mm. That's a beautiful theological image of Christ's blood sufficing for the sins of the whole world. Absolutely. Um, the, the resonances and the, the, the ramifications of, of, of Lewis's imagination here are really, really wondrous and profound.
0: That is truly amazing, you know it's interesting in modern astronomy, just a couple of years ago, they did a uh the the um, Juno satellite to Jupiter, and the astronomers involved in the project were talking about Jupiter like a monster and all these scary terms and things and uh rather, you know we, we talk about the the necessity of having a good imagination and using the right metaphors, the appropriate metaphors um and Lewis was all about this he he said uh i 'm not sure what book it is you can tell me." He says, uh, "Without parable, modern physics speaks not to the multitudes." So, mm-hmm. when a modern cosmologist calls Jupiter a monster, um, you know what kind of what kind of thought process is going on there. But when when the satellite arrived at the planet and they got their first images from Jupiter and the, the four moons going around it, uh, the director of the project described Jupiter to the press at the press conference when they unveiled these images this is the king of the planets with his disciples <laughs> going around him
2: uh-huh. and
0: uh and 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 it speaks to the language in the psalms when we when we read i think it's psalm 84:11 when we read that god our god is a sun s u n and a shield now does that mean jesus is a ball of plasma with rays coming out of him or that he's some kind of uh you know uh medieval uh a crusader shield or something like this. No, it's metaphorical, but that's exactly sort of the you know light and protection, um, being inside of Christ, as you say, the earth inside the spot of blood on Jupiter, or being in Christ in in Him, in His blood, cleansed by His blood. He is a sun that lights our path, and He is a shield, a protector. Um, and so, as you say, this is this is just the, the layering of Lewis's imagination. His use of metaphors, it's like there is no wasted word in Narnia.
1: That's right, yes. And he, and he was quite a keen am, amateur astronomer too. It, it wasn't just a purely literary and poetic interest that he had in, in these seven heavens. Mm-hmm. He had a telescope on the balcony of his bedroom, and he, he liked going to the l- local observatory. And he, he, he read a fair bit in modern physics and cosmology, but he, he never forgot that there's a, a spiritual reality behind or within this material reality as well. So, for instance, in a letter that he wrote uh, just after Christmas one year, Mm. uh, he writes to a friend saying, it was beautiful on two or three successive nights about the holy time, that is to say, about the Christmas that's just passed. It was beautiful to see Venus and Jove blazing at one another, once with the moon right between them, majesty and love linked by virginity. What could be more appropriate? So Venus and J- Jove, Venus and Jupiter, with the Moon between them, they represent love for Venus, majesty for Jupiter, virginity for the Moon, and of course, what could be more appropriate for the story of, you know, the feast of the birth of Christ, mm-hmm. born in the, in the Virgin's womb? Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's lovely that he was able to take his his astronomical knowledge, and and unite it with his theological knowledge, and indeed with his own personal spiritual life. Um, it wasn't just an academic game for Lewis. It really meant something to him.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, when he when he likens this, I think it was his reflections on the Psalms. I think this is where this quote comes from. He says, uh, you know, he's constantly saying of nature, you know, what do I remind you of? Like nature is constantly reminding us of something. So we wouldn't say that Lewis is saying that God intended these symbols to be what they remind him of. He's just saying that they. This is what they remind him of. Is that a correct distinction, or he's not actually attributing that God had set these up this way? This is the way Lewis sees them. Is that accurate? Um,
1: I'm not sure. It's, it's quite a, a subtle point that you're you're trying to tease out here. Um, you know, because um, th- the, these qualities that cluster around the seven heavens. Um, they're not entirely arbitrary. They're not just stuck on at random by human imaginations. Okay. It's not as if it's not as if, for instance, you know, the, the gold qualities of the sun could be equally well applied to the moon. Right. Of course not, because the moon is right. silver and right. the sun is gold, just to look at. So very naturally we associate them with with the particular metals that we experience on Earth. Okay. Um, and likewise with you know, the the rapidly moving nature of Mercury, given that Mercury moves so quickly across the sky, it's a natural human response to say Mercury must be young. M- Mercury must be busy, um, you know, because f- things are f- fast moving, are, you know, he- healthy and young and lively. And it's often because they've got, you know, messages to carry back and forth or, mm. or business to transact. The mm. transact mm-hmm. So you can see how Mercury acquired these qualities of of alacrity and dexterity and, and, and uh, trade and language, so these qualities, as I say they're not just they're not simply random associations you know spun out of the human imagination without any reference to reality there's a There's a concord of a certain kind between our response on the thing we're observing. In other words, um, we as human beings are, are beginning to discern some of the of the meaningfulness which God in his creative act has imbued reality with. Um, there's, a, there's a harmony between the human perception and, and the non-human world that we perceive. And that's mm. surely intended by god at some level yes because in god all all things live and move and have their being and you know in in him all things hold together uh, but of course you know that one wouldn't want to press that too far and, and say that necessarily unavoidably uh jupiter was is intended by god as a as a symbol of kingship mm-hmm. i mean it, it's hard to see from my point of view it's hard to see how that. That connection arose in the human imagination yeah um, it's it 's less obvious but but I dare say there are reasons if if we only knew them
0: mhm mhm I think it uh, you know when we first understood what Jupiter was was primarily through galileo 's first glimpse at it uh, when he first saw it through the telescope and saw the four the four moons, which he attributed to stars at first but uh, that that uh, Discovery really opened our eyes. Another kind of wardrobe, if you will, Galileo's uh, telescope, seeing that the nature of Jupiter, unlike we've ever ever seen it before, and then recognizing a whole different dimension to the way the universe was at the time. Lewis didn't believe that the when he had this delight for the medieval model, kind of going along the lines of what you're just saying. Uh, he said, I think it was it was in discarded image. He said he didn't believe in the science of the model correct he was just for the aesthetics the spiritual symbolism but he was not advocating that we we return to the to the the kind of science that was involved in the medieval cosmos is that right
1: of course yeah yeah i mean he's he's very frank about this in his book the discarded image he says my my readers will be begging to remind me that this cosmology had one major flaw it was not true. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and, and, and Lewis says, I agree, it was not true. You know, it, it wasn't um, an accurate representation of the relationship between the planets as, as we now understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, because we have moved away from the geocentric cosmos to a heliocentric model. Mm-hmm. Um, but the point he's trying to make is that our own understanding of the cosmos is itself a model we are doing the best we can to represent what we observe um, in scientific terms. But in 500 years time, someone may come along, some great physicist, and make some stunning new discovery, which puts our current model of the cosmos uh, completely out of date. You know, there'll be a There'll be a new Copernicus. Mm-hmm. There'll be a new mm-hmm. Einstein. These these great scientists come along and they shatter the previous paradigm, which everybody had understood to be the true paradigm. Right. Uh, and and truth turns out to be more complicated, more more yes. um intriguing than we had previously supposed it to be. But that doesn't mean that that the previous models were therefore completely valueless or worthless. Mm. Indeed. One of the purposes that Lewis has in writing the discarded image and talking about these previous cosmological models is to remind us that all models of the cosmos get in as much of the facts as they can at a certain time, um, but equally he says they they uh, betoken the state of that age's psychology as well
2: mm. Um, mm.
1: They're, they're not they're not neutral um, And entirely objective grids that we lay over reality, because they 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 spring out of our own uh, preferred metaphors. They spring out of our own preconceptions. They are answers to the questions that we are asking, and if we ask a different set of questions, we may get a different set of answers. Right. And all of this, you know, sounds to some minds uh, terribly postmodern, as if Lewis is saying there's no objective truth. He's he's not saying that at all. You know, he he was. He was sternly and strictly in favor of objective value, as we find in his book, The Abolition of Man. Um, What he was trying to push back against, I think, was a a foolish kind of modernism. Uh, The modernist approach, which thought that a certain set of scientific metaphors, a certain particular paradigm, was the last word on the the topic. And that's a kind of idolatry. Mm. That's what he's aiming his, his barbs against when he says that we should respect all cosmological models. But idolize none of them, we should never we should never suppose that we have got the last word on the cosmos because of, mm. of the model that we have devised to explain it right and that's one of the values of reminding ourselves of of the pre Copernican cosmos that it it reminds us that once upon a time we asked different questions and um, we had different values and different metaphors to describe reality yeah, and that's that has a freshening effect upon our self-understanding, and, and it makes us more humble um, in in view of the facts, and therefore it makes us more open to new discoveries. Right. So it's a it's a very positive view it's, from scientific point of view. It's it's a very positive perspective that Lewis has, even as he challenges a, a sort of unwarranted um, respect for the current scientific model.
0: Mm-hmm. He says in a Discarded Image exactly what you're saying. Uh, we are all very properly familiar with the idea that in every age, the human mind is deeply influenced by the accepted model of the universe. And he goes on to say, but there is a two way traffic. The model is also influenced by the prevailing temper of mind. It's exactly what you said in, in Gist. And, yeah. and, and, it seems to me that, uh, and this is your chapter in our book, "Story of the Cosmos," Lewis addressing the whole etymological, philological idea of space and emptiness as part of the prevailing metaphor of our cosmos, and from what he seems to be saying in "Discarded Image," that the temper of mind that uh, against which he argued was uh, the science fiction writers of his time, the the, the cold, dark deathly Saturn-like vacuity of emptiness that the universe seems to now take on, which seem to directly influence the way we think about ourselves and the way we think about ourselves. As you say, the psychology of our own emptiness, the the modern psychology of meaninglessness and purposelessness and uh, a loss of teleology— Uh, that this we shoot back up into the heavens, that we're empty and defeated and depressed, and well, the heavens want to eat us for lunch. Mm -hmm. And so there's this two-way street of despair that I think Lewis was trying to counter in not only his science fiction works, but in miracles and his apologetics, trying to overcome this Saturn-like despair that was permeating the modern models, would you say?
1: Yes, absolutely. And and again, we see something of that depicted very skillfully in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, in that Edmund um, goes through into Narnia. And, and what does he discover? He does not discover, as his sister Lucy had discovered, a, a, a hospitable fawn who was lamenting the lost days of jollification.
2: Mm-hmm. He
1: found, rather, the White Witch herself mm. and became her slave. Um, and that's representative of of the attitude that Edmund brought with him. You know he he was already going astray We're told that that he he would begun to go wrong ever since he started going to that terrible school we're told um so he brings with him he brings with him into Narnia a psychology which is predisposed to be receptive to the saturnine effects of the witch mm. of course, wonderfully he he is converted from that he's saved from that by the redemptive death of Aslan. Mm. and he, he becomes a, a great king, King Edmund the Just. Just yeah. and gentle are Jove's children, we're told in Lewis's poem. Um, so it's a marvellous manifestation of, of Jupiter over, overmatching the, the Saturnine uh, impact of the witch. Mm. Um, but yeah, it speaks to mm. the fact that none of us is completely innocent in the attitudes that we bring to a given topic. We all have our preconceptions and presuppositions. And, Trying to get outside those, trying to make allowances for those, is 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 part of what it means to be wise. It's a growth in humility mm. uh, to become aware of of these predispositions.
0: Now, Michael, I know you um, you're still at HBU, right? Are you still teaching? That's right. Yes. And you are in uh, the program that I, of course, we talked about at the beginning. I the the, the rich integration of of reason and imagination. Um, in the degree program. And now that I'm out of the degree program and in the field of apologetics professionally at Watchmen, I find a dearth of imagination in apologetics today, which I think, you know, there's there's an effort to try to cultivate this, but there's such a, a it, it's it's like uh, Malcolm Guide has said um, in his book, Faith, Hope, and Poetry, that somehow the imagination gets a bad rap. I'm Paraphrasing him, um, somehow we've we've thought that reason is somehow uh, less noetically affected by sin uh, than the imagination. We we sort of treat it as a second cousin or something. But uh, Mister Geitz says in that book, "quote We require imagination both to make and to interpret symbols, and that symbols themselves beckon us through language." to that which is beyond language. And I think that summarizes Narnia pretty well, even though I know Mr. Geit wasn't talking about Narnia there per se, but this is this is what Lewis was doing, language and symbolism drawing us all beyond the language and symbols themselves to the light that illuminates everything, would you say?
1: Yes, absolutely. You know, We've got to read reality, including language and our own thought. We've got to read it um, iconically and not idolatrously. So an icon is, is something you look through. Uh, an idol is something you you look at that, you know, stops your sight. An idol does. But an icon is more like a stained glass window. You know, the light the light comes from beyond. It lights up the frame of your window, and mm-hmm. the, the shape you've given to it and the color you've put upon it. Um, but the, the stained glass window, when there's no light coming through it, looks terrible. Uh, it always reminds you that there's something beyond. Mm that stained glass window approach to reality is precisely what I think yeah, Malcolm Guidey is getting at in that fabulous book. Mm-hmm. Faith, Hope, poetry. If your readers haven't, if your listeners haven't read it, they really should turn to it. It's brilliant. And by the way, if, if your readers also want to come and study like you studied at Houston Baptist University, they're very welcome to do so. I teach two courses online for their program in apologetics, the Master of Arts in apologetics. Um, and I turn up for a week in person, usually once a year in the spring in March. Um, so it's 100% online um to get the degree and you can you can do it from anywhere in the world you don't have to live in texas let alone houston and as i say i live in oxford in england um, and yet i'm very much part of this course so i would encourage your listeners if they if they've been at all intrigued by what we've been discussing today to, to check out uh, hbu
0: absolutely and i can uh, validate and second that as a student um, it is a wonderful program and uh, for many of you contemplating this uh, it could be the very wardrobe. Uh, that opens up doors, because just on a personal level, Michael, like my life changed reading Planet Narnia in 2013. After reading the book, I found out you were at HBU. I came to study at HBU. Uh, after HBU, we miraculously, like a gift, like uh, Father Christmas coming to the children who emerge from the cave, hiding from the witch, he gives them gifts. And this is part of the kingly nature of, of the Jovian atmosphere, is a gift giver. Uh, I have the gift of a book, uh, the gift of a job. A lot of this I can trace back to following the paths through the wardrobe, if you will, uh, from the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So even here at Watchman Fellowship at our office, uh, Michael, here in Arlington, it's an old house, and there's upstairs, there's a spare bedroom where I sometimes stay. I call it the spare room. And outside in our yard, as you come to the old house, there is a lamppost, just Mm. like Narnia. So... (laughs) <laughs> it's really cool but you know it is true that it it made me stop and take stock of the kinds of things that Jesus has given me uh, like Ephesians 2:10 that that God has prepared good works for us to do in advance and and so God gives us gifts and equips us for the real battle if you will the children find themselves transported from one Earthly, worldly conflict into the true, the, the the real nature, the real conflict to where they are uh, really what you know they were intended to be kings and queens in Narnia, and so God equips us uh, through our various wardrobe experiences for the real battle. And I can attest to just reading Lewis and reading your book and studying with you that that that, that God has used these symbols. Uh, to to lead me on and encourage me on in the ministry that he's given me to do, so it's it's real. I mean, it, the Narnia it's 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 a real adventure. It really does. Uh, there's a real essence to it, and it it really does get at the heart of what the Christian faith is. We can all identify ourselves as Edmund, undeserving of God's grace, uh, having you know sin in our own lives, um, not being worthy of, of kingship, trying to get kingship in our own special way. Um, needing that redemptive sacrifice, needing to be in the blood of Christ. And and so I, I think Lewis does exactly, he, he accomplishes what he exactly set out to do, which was to um, to give us the true essence of Christianity through symbolism and literature and metaphor and story.
1: Absolutely. It's, it's a very rich um, subject that you're putting your finger on, a, a, a rich vein that we could mine for hours and hours. I mean, what, what we're talking about really is is the bounty, the generosity of God himself, who, who gives himself to us in Christ and in this world that he's created. Mm-hmm. And within that world, great poets like C.S. Lewis receive the gifts and put them into books. And then those books are, are analyzed by literary critics like me. And then readers of literary critics like me come along, people like you who find them inspiring and informative and helpful and then you in turn turn towards the apologetic ministry that you're now engaged in and all your listeners and readers in turn will will take these gifts and run with them in their own directions it's like an endless waterfall going from from one level to one degree of glory to another it is Um, there's no end story every chapter is better than the one before
0: further up further in indeed it is I I like what Lewis says in a preface to Paradise Lost, um, talking about uh, the medieval model. He says, speaking of of the poem um, Paradise Lost, he said, This is the whole medieval synthesis itself, the whole organization of theology, science, and history into a single, complex, harmonious mental model, capital M, of the universe, capital U, end quote. And that's what we tried to do in Story of the Cosmos, too, Michael. I mean, that's how Lewis's vision inspired me and 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 uh, Paul Gould. Uh, we wanted to create a story of the cosmos that was, is, is in essentially, uh, medieval in its synthesis. In other words, this medieval synthesis is still very true today. We just have to dust it off and uncover uh, how these things fit together. And uh, I, I think uh, it's, it's just... Uh, a monument. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is a monument, uh, a chief monumental achievement of, of Lewis being able to synthesize, inspire, and and use words wisely as a philologist. You know, uh, uh, constructing words, building the aesthetics, building the stage. Uh, one last thing I'd like to, to to hit just very briefly before we wrap up here is uh, a lot of people talk about uh, Narnia, uh, especially *Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*, being a fairy tale argument version of miracles is there truth to this or is this just a rumor uh is lewis really t- speaking about miracles in 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 the lion the witch and the wardrobe
1: well i have a whole argument a whole chapter in my book uh, designed to bring out that very point That yes i think there's a strong connection between his book miracles and the lion the witch in the wardrobe hmm. and i say that for any number of reasons it's a little bit big topic to get into right now but in essence yes yes in essence miracles is an argument for a monarchical world a world in which we have this quality called reason which is effectively king over the rest of the rest of our human experience um, we're not just matter we are spirit we're not just bodies we are minds yeah we have this rational faculty in other words we operate on two levels at once we're like a monarchy in which there is the king and then there is the commons. We're not just a flat democracy uh, where everything is is ontologically on the same level. So in Miracles, he's arguing for this monarchical picture of reality. Uh, And in Narnia, he gives us, he just shows us, he presents us with a monarchical world in which the symbol of kingship, Jupiter, is the controlling symbol that runs through every every cell of that body as it were um so that's in in very brief summary what i see is the connection between those two books um but it's a profound testimony i think to lewis's ability to think both philosophically and dramatically Mm. he he was a he was a an academic with skills in uh, philosophy and logic but he was also a poet with skills in, in narrative and character and storytelling. Um, so yeah, check out my chapter uh, 10, I think it is, in Planet Narnia for, for more on that, if anybody wants it. And let me finish, Dan, by quoting, not myself, <laughs> in a fashion, fashion, um, but rather the work, work of uh, Francis Spufford, who is a British novelist and literary critic and a very interesting thinker. And he wrote a book some years ago called uh, "The Child That Books Built: A Memoir of Childhood and Reading." Hmm. And he has a whole chapter on the Narnia Chronicles. He says that Narnia—he was—he re- only ever read the Narnia Chronicles because, well, no, sorry, he only ever read books other than the Narnia Chronicles because he couldn't always be reading Narnia Chronicles. You know, he had to give other books a look-in from time to time. <laughs> yeah. um, and he, he found Narnia so inspiring that it, he said it was like a, a live wire that's sending jolts through his nerves mm. and um he ends he ends his description by by saying this um and I'll, I'll close with this myself francis spufford says i had a i had the poster map of narnia by pauline baines up on the wall on the upstairs landing at home in the top right hand corner She'd painted Aslan's golden face in a rosette of mane. Once, when no one was around, I crept onto the landing and kissed Aslan's nose in experimental adoration and then fled, quivering with excited shame because I had brought something into the real world from story's realm of infinite deniability.
0: Mm.
1: I'm not going to comment on that. It speaks for itself.
0: It does. Thank you, Michael, for your time and uh, all you've done and uh, for bringing Lewis to the world and reminding us of the treasure uh, uh, of this series, of this book, which Lewis says is all about Christ. Um, and Lewis wonderfully portrays this in uh, in the Narnia series. If you haven't read it in a while, uh, this is a great excuse to read it again. Uh, listen to it on audiobook, or uh, just just sit down and read it again and and look around your own spare ooms and find the wardrobe. find the porthole that God is bringing to you in this time of uh, the air raids, if you will. Uh, the transformative opportunities are at your elbow, and I think that's uh, that to me is the 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 useful message, the continual wonderful, applicable nature of Narnia. It applies to all times and all people and all places.
1: You know, Aslan is now 70 years old. Narnia is now three score years and 10. And uh, it says in the Bible, that a man's years shall be three score years and 10 or four score if he's very strong. Um, you know, you might live to 80 if you're lucky. Um, well, I, I predict that Narnia will live well beyond its 80th birthday. I think these, these are Lewis's greatest works and they'll, they'll, live, they'll live indefinitely. For as long as people can read English, people are going to be turning to these books.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this very special combined broadcast of Good Heavens and Apologetics Profile. If you're new to Good Heavens, welcome. Be sure to check out our inventory of over three years of podcasting about the heavens from a biblical perspective. My co-host Wayne Spencer and I have been chatting about the universe in relation to scripture since 2017. We talk about everything cosmologically related and occasionally feature experts in their field who are themselves Christians. And if you're new to Apologetics Profile, welcome. We cover a wide variety of apologetics topics, other world religions, cults, New Age ideas, and non-Christian worldviews. Good Heavens and Apologetics Profile are productions of Watchman Fellowship Incorporated, Arlington, Texas. For more information on our podcasts and content, be sure to visit watchman.org. That's watchman.org. Thank you again for tuning in to this special broadcast with Dr. Michael Ward.